What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and the naturally mean Olivia, as some <laughs> members would say. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I got code main because oh, <laughs> do we even want to go into it? Someone asked a question that was very easily Googleable, and I said, is your Google broken? And that makes me naturally mean, apparently. She was just being, like, funny. And the person was like, have you always been naturally mean? <laughs> That's the first time I've ever been called naturally mean, so I guess there's a first for everything this week. <laughs> and Olivia was like, yeah, I have been. <laughs> I was just born this way. <laughs> naturally mean society can be our next society. <laughs> yeah, we're done with smug bitch society, now we're on to naturally mean, naturally mean society. We've upgraded or downgraded, I don't know. Anyways... Sorry, I surprised Olivia with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't expecting that one. (laughs) I was plotting. Um, But today we're recording. It's September 25th. And we actually decided we're going to do a bit of an update episode because there was a big update with Michael Shaver's case, as I'm sure a lot of people know by now. So we're going to go over the um, affidavit or the arrest information because it gave more information into why Lori was finally arrested. Another one where, of course, there was a massive update right as soon as we released the episode. Yeah. So I'm not going to say we had anything to do with it, but... (laughs) It was definitely because of us. Decide for yourselves. (laughs) So we thought while we were were doing that update, we might as well go and do an update on every case that we've spoken about this year so far. So some have some big updates and other ones not so much, but we'll go through and each episode tell you what's been happening. So if you haven't listened to them all, you might want to go listen to them. Yes. Most of the updates will probably only be a few minutes. So if there's one you don't know, just just suffer through. Yeah. We were just chatting about, um, you know, what's exciting things have been happening this week. And I think the most exciting thing is that we're getting some more merch. So Kelly has, I think, finished designing it now. And by the time this episode comes out, it should be live. So check it out. There's some cool new designs um, she's got a really neat new font that she's been using, so check it out and buy some. Halloween-themed a little. Yeah, I know. I've, I was just saying to someone earlier that I've worn my stuff so much this winter. I've got hoodies and sweats and everything. They're all, it's been so warm and cozy, so I know you guys are coming into winter, so I might just have to buy some T-shirts or something this time around. Yeah, the new design, it has some potion bottles on it for... A little bit yeah. of a Halloween theme, very cute. So check it out if you didn't get anything the first time. Yeah, she's made a um, chuckle fuck shirt as well, which oh, I know yeah. lots of people wanted with the Ethan and Tatiana case. So if we finally did it. If you want a sh- chuckle fuck shirt, you can come and grab one. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start with the update for Karak Petsky, which was one of the first, I think it's the first episode listed that we have, one of the first episodes we've done. We did our episode on Kara Kapetsky and Jessica Runyon's on April 22nd of this year. For anyone who isn't familiar with the case, Kara went missing from Belton, Missouri in 2007, and another woman, Jessica Runyon's, went missing in the same area in 2016. And mushroom hunters found the remains of both women in 2017. Breaking right now, a decade-long search for Kara Kapetsky is over. Authorities have just revealed bones uncovered in rural Cass County earlier this year are those of the 17-year-old from Belton, Missouri. She went missing back in May of 2007. KCTV5's Emily Rittman has followed this story closely over the years, and tonight she is live with the latest on this major development. Emily. 
Ellen, we did speak with Cara's family who tells us that they were just received notification that the second set of remains found was identified as their daughter. You may remember back on April 3rd, a mushroom hunter discovered two sets of human remains in Cass County near East 233rd and Missouri Highway Y south of Belton. Investigators identified one set of remains as Jessica Runyon's. For months, Cara's family waited to see if the second set of remains would in fact be their daughter. Today, they got confirmation that they will finally be able to lay Cara to rest. They've waited for answers ever since the day she disappeared on May 4th, 2007. A creep named Kyler, <laughs> Kyler with an R, used, was charged with their murders and he's been waiting for trial basically since then. So a few small updates in regards to the trial. In May, it's actually, this is like a huge mess, which kind of makes me worried for the case a little. Yeah. Um, in May, Kyler's attorney filed a motion asking for a delay in his trial due to COVID, which isn't really shocking. In addition to those complications, his lawyers also argued that they didn't receive a police report regarding a witness who came forward in 2013 to provide information on another suspect whose vehicle was later searched by the FBI until January 2020. It was when <laughs> they found out about it. The reports were only found when the Belton Police Department was apparently cleaning out some old desk, and they contacted the prosecution, according to the filing. A quote from the filing says, the police failed to fully investigate the information provided and never even attempted to interview the suspect and other witnesses named in the reports. Also, while cleaning out the desk, police found previously undisclosed and undocumented recording of a suspect who had confessed to multiple witnesses that he killed Kara, according to the filing. Youth lawyers say that they received that video recording in April. Jumping ahead a little bit, Kyler's trial was due to happen in July, and it didn't, obviously. So it was just announced this month that Judge William Collins told attorneys for the prosecution and the defense to prepare for a trial between March and April of next year, 2021, with a specific date to hopefully set a date for the trial on October 5th. So in August, it was revealed that Kyler was alleging that his, this is a totally like separate mess of it. Yeah. <laughs> in August, <laughs> Kyler alleged that his attorney client calls and other communication had been recorded like from the jail. So the Cass County Sheriff's Office hired someone to investigate the communication system at Cass County Jail, and it turns out that they found failures within the turnkey software system, and approximately 23 of Kyler's calls to his attorney were recorded, and 12 of those calls were monitored, mostly by two employees in the Sheriff's Office, according to the state's court filing. But because of the issues with the turnkey system, several attorney-client emails were not encrypted either. In the filing, Cass County prosecuting attorney Ben Butler said that the state does not intend to call either of those jail employees who access use calls as witnesses in the trial. So they argue that the violations don't warrant the removal of the county prosecutor or the dismissal of the case. <clears throat> sounds like a big mess. Yeah, sounds like... I feel yeah, I feel terrible for the families of Jessica and Kara because this is just, it must seem to them like this is just never, ever going to progress or must yeah, be so frustrating. Yeah, that investigation has <laughs> been kind of a mess from the start, I feel. Yeah, definitely. Especially, yeah. I think we even spoke about that in the episode about how lots of people have criticised the police and the, you know, yeah. everyone involved in this case because it's just been a big mess. Hopefully 
next year. Now it will, you know, something will actually happen. But it seems like a lot of mistakes that could work in the defense's favor, unfortunately. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that and we'll let everyone know how it goes. But apparently, well, maybe in the next few weeks, I'll find out when the trial may start. But it looks like it'll be next year. Hopefully. There must be such a backlog now as well with everything that's been pushed back. I know. It's like the same with weddings. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone has to push back a whole year. (laughs) All right. So the next episode that we did was a double one um, in April and May. And we spoke about the Long Island serial killer case. For anyone who hasn't heard about it, uh, the Long Island serial killer, you might have read it as LISC, is it's been abbreviated to, the Gilgo Beach killer or the Craigslist ripper is an unidentified suspected serial killer who is believed to have murdered between 10 and 16 people over a period of 20 years. The victims were mostly prostitutes or sex workers and they left, the serial killer left the bodies in areas on the south shore of Long Island in New York. It is one of the most baffling serial murder cases in modern American history. Centered on this lonely stretch of sand on the south shore of Long Island, New York. Gilgo Beach, a small community with a big mystery on its hands. The bodies of 15 brutally murdered young women. And there seems to be a pattern. Many of them under 5 feet tall and less than 100 pounds. All dumped in the surrounding dunes over a period of 20 years. These girls did not deserve to die the way they did. They didn't deserve to have their bodies discarded in the manner. And the families and these girls deserve justice. But as the body count has risen, confidence in anyone's ability to find the killer is at an all-time low. They need to finally wake up and realize the victims, their families need information. So we, in that episode too, we also included um, some info about the disappearance and death of Shannon Gilbert. Uh, she hasn't been confirmed to have been a victim of the Long Island serial killer, but many people think that her case may be related. So in terms of this one, there's been two updates. Um, and I know we spoke quickly previously about one of the Jane Does in the episode and that they'd been identified. The Suffolk County Police said that the woman previously known as Jane Doe number six was identified through genetic genealogy technology. That's a mouthful. <laughs> genetic genealogy technology <laughs> as Valerie Mack, who also went by the name Melissa Taylor, and she was last seen in the year 2000 in Atlantic City, New Jersey. She was 24 when she disappeared, but she was never reported as a missing person. Her remains were found in two places more than 40 miles and 10 years apart. In 2000, some of her remains were found in Manorville, near where Long Island splits, and in 2011, near Gilgo Beach, where the remains of the other victims were found. The other update, which we're really excited for, but it's turned out to be a bit of a non-event so far, is that a judge... We've been excited for a while. (laughs) We've been waiting. I think this was in May. So in May, a judge ordered the release of the 911 call in Shannon Gilbert's case. Um, We thought it would be released quickly because they were all, you know, publicising it, but so far nothing has been made public. Her family have heard it and they're trying to raise money for a voice analysis of the call. Her sister Sherry said there may be more voices on the call other than herself. Because of the background noise, it's hard to understand clearly who is speaking and what was said. We need to try to ID all the voices. So I had a look at the GoFundMe for that. So it says, um, this is a little bit of a background into the case for anyone who's not familiar. It says, Shannon Shannon Gilbert went missing on May 1, 2010 from Oak Beach. 
on the night, she made a 23-minute long 911 call and the family finally got it through the court order. It says, it's clear that Shannon frantically called 911 at 4.53 a.m. She was on the call for 23 minutes while running through the small community of Oak Beach, banging on doors and pleading for help. 23 minutes is like such a long time. Like I know we talked about that before. We're just hearing it again. It's like 23 minutes of a 911 call, like running around in distress. It's crazy. Yeah. And and then they didn't even come. They took ages to still. Yeah. I, get, I mean, I know, I know they didn't know where she was or anything like that. So, so I've got it. Anyone? I sound a bit croaky. I've got a sinus infection. Sorry. <laughs> but um. So anyway, they they wanted to raise between eighteen hundred and two thousand dollars, and the GoFundMe is currently at thirty four hundred. So, hopefully, fingers crossed, we might hear something about the nine one one call soon. And if we do, we'll pop it on the blog and everything. But. That's about it for updates for the Long Island serial killer case. Yep. So then next we did an episode on Honey and Barry Sherman. We did that on May 20th. And that was about the billionaire couple whose murder is still unsolved. And unfortunately, there's really no updates in that case. It is still unsolved and there's been nothing. Yeah, I'm not really surprised about that one. I guess it's just a so, – I mean, I'm not surprised by the lack of updates. Yeah. It seems to have stalled. and It'll be exciting when there finally is one, if there mm. ever is one. <laughs> uh, the next one that we did at the end of May was about missing woman Karina Slusser. Karina went missing from New York City on September 20, 2017. For anyone who's not familiar, um, Karina went to the city, basically was lured there to – do sex work and she was escorting and things like that. It's believed that she may have been a victim of human trafficking. Um, you know, that's one of the theories anyway. Corinna would never run away and have absolutely no contact with her friends and family. I firmly believe that a person or persons have taken control of my niece. Corinna definitely got into something way over her head. Corinna wanted to move in with me permanently in December of 2016. At first, I had agreed to let her move in. However, I was afraid that I was not going to be able to handle the angst of a teenage girl, so I changed my mind. I do believe that Corinna had a whole other life that she was hiding from everyone. Corinna wanted to have a faster, more exciting life, and she met an individual that made promises to help provide her with that. The last time that I spoke to Corinna was on uh, September 11th of uh, 2017. I called her after finding out that she was in New York and asked her if I could come and pick her up. I told her, baby girl, I know that somebody hurt you. And she said, "Um, yeah, I'm not worried about that. I could never have fathomed that my niece could be involved in a human trafficking ring. The only real update in this one is that on September 20, that was marked three years since she went missing. I looked if there was an update on the case or anything, but all I could find was this update post in her missing person group. It says, I'm sorry, but there have been no updates. Her mum just talked to the lieutenant last week and he didn't have anything new to report, although they are still working on her case. Today is three years since she was heard from. And someone had asked a question in the group about Ishiwoni, who is in jail for trafficking and, you know, things like that. They said, if you're talking about Ishiwoni, he's in jail for the next 11 years. It was 15 and he filed an appeal and now it's 11. Mm -hmm. So another 
um, sad one with not many updates. The only other thing too that I could probably add in quickly is that we got sent a message this week from a man who um, had Googled the phone numbers that we had on the blog for Corinna. They were, you know, we'd put them up there because they were the ones that she was using on her Craigslist ads or her, you know, escorting ads. And he Googled one of the numbers and it was current and had been used as of February this year by an escort called Jessica. So I'm assuming I'm pretty certain that that Jessica is the same Jessica Wabbit that we spoke about in, um, which is the basically issues like girlfriend or main yeah. girl that he traffics. So the number was still being used. I don't think it relates really to Karina, even though it was a number she used. I think it's just their little group. I think that's still really like that number issues. Yeah, like issues and the pimps like numbers. So then next episode we did June third. This one was about two missing cases that were kind of similar. Um, Tyler Davis and Chance Engelbert. Again, there's not really any big updates with these, unfortunately. So August 24th marked 18 months since Tyler disappeared. And as far as we can tell, there have been no new developments in his case. Um, Tyler's mother-in-law made a Facebook post that says... Today marks 18 months since Tyler Davis was last seen at the Hilton Columbus at Easton. This means it's been 544 days since Brittany last saw her husband, since Aaron last saw his dad, since his parents last saw their son. Please continue sharing Tyler's flyer in hopes that answers will come soon in Tyler's case. Contact the Columbus Division of Police with any information about Tyler's disappearance. So not much there. Um, pretty much the same story for Chance. July 6th marked 12 months since Chance disappeared. The gearing police captain, Jason Rogers, gave an update on that day and said that they'll still follow up on any tips that come in. He also said that there was never any unusual activity from Chance's financial accounts. And he also confirmed that many of the theories, including one involving freshly poured concrete that had to do with, I think... His girlfriend's was, family. Yeah, her girlfriend's yeah, family just poured concrete around the time. Yeah, so I guess they looked I guess they looked into that and it's all those have been ruled out. Um Chance's mother Dawn also made a new plea. She said, Please keep praying, keep saying his name. We've got to keep the story alive until somebody talks. Somebody had to have heard something or seen something. It must be so terrible just to how can someone just vanish? Like, obviously, it's not surprising that happens all the time, but it still blows my mind how people can just disappear off the face of the earth. Without a trace, as one would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, then also another one with no updates. <laughs> I know there's quite a lot of no updates, but I figured we should mention them all. This is a no show. update update episode. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Some of them have pretty good updates coming. It was just a lot, in, a lot in a row. So Yeah. But this one was expected because it's pretty much like case closed in the official world. But June 10th, we did the episode on Bailey Smith and Emery Connery. That was the cousin murder-suicide. Bailey was a police officer. Emery was a cousin. They were driving home and they were both found dead. Bailey allegedly, I guess, shot them both. Well, yeah, I think the the official finding is that he shot them both. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But there's been no updates, nothing official, which isn't really surprising. I don't think there will ever be an update unless, like, something crazy happens or someone confesses to something. So I wouldn't hold your breath on that one. 
I do know that with that case, we, we still get people joining and like still to this day joining for it and discussing it. I saw someone post, I think just yesterday about a theory that they had that um, their theory, which I don't know if I agree with, because I'm pretty sure the gunshots happened before the accident, but their theory was that he crashed the car while driving drunk. And because he was a police officer, he just panicked and you know, shot and she was injured, which I also don't think is a thing because I've never seen her autopsy saying that she had injuries from the car accident. But, you know, it's yeah. still interesting that people come and discuss, like it's 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 still being talked about. Yeah, people day. are really into that one. Yeah, and I think because it's a small town as well, we had a lot of locals joining. It seems like it's very um, swept under the rug and mysterious. So, it'll, yeah, I also don't think we'll ever hear any more unless, you know, someone decides to spill but I don't think that's likely to happen all right the next one where we actually have a lot of updates not surprisingly is uh the episodes that we did on Laurie Vallow and Chad Daybell for anyone I don't even know how to give an intro to that case if you're not familiar but (laughs) it's a crazy case there Laurie and Chad were married all their ex or you know former spouses are dead there's like a trail of dead people related to this case Laurie's children went missing last year and they found their remains earlier this year. This story starts in 2018 when Lori Vallow first meets Chad Daybell. Legal expert Allison Treasel says things spiraled quickly from there. According to local reports, Chad and Lori met at a religious event. At that time, Chad Daybell, who was formerly a gravedigger, was a doomsday author. He also was believing in zombies. Well, when Lori met him, she absolutely became obsessed, not just with Chad Daybell, but with his religious teachings. They were uh, convinced uh, of their ability to do supernatural things. However, Vallow is married at this time to her husband, Charles, but on January 31st, 2019, Charles is seen on police body cam saying Vallow threatened him and the kids. She threatened me physically. She made me us about the kids. She doesn't care what happens to them. Come get them out of care. The couple files for divorce soon after, but then on July 11th, Vallow's brother, Alex Cox, shoots Charles, stating it was in self-defense. But what does Lori do after Charles is killed? Reports are that she allegedly had a house party in the home the day that Charles is killed. Then she takes JJ and Tylee, and they move to Idaho, presumably to be closer to Chad Daybell, then, three months later, Daybell's wife reportedly dies of natural causes in her sleep, and only two weeks after that, Daybell and Vallow get married. To add to suspicion in December, only a few months later, Cox dies from a blood clot in his lung. While all of this chaos is going on, the underlying question and the focus of the investigation remains on where are Lori's two children, JJ and Tylee. Um, so we've got actually that, the biggest blog that we've ever done. We've got a three-part blog on the case if you aren't familiar with it, so go and check it out. But there have been many, many, many updates from our favourite smug couple. Yeah. <laughs> I won't go into them all because it would be a whole episode in itself, but they are all on the blog so you can go and check them out. But I've picked the main ones just to have a quick chat about. So on July 2, Laurie had desertion charges against her dropped, and I guess that's because the kids had been found dead and you can't really desert dead child (laughs) Um, which makes sense 
there's been lots and lots of legal back and forth. Both Chad and Laurie have been trying to get their trials moved and there's been lots of general stalling tactics. Um, all the details with the court documents are on the blog if you really want to read them. July 12 marked one year since Alex Cox shot and killed Charles Vallow, who was Laurie's husband. Um, I saw Laurie's son, Colby, made a post and it said, Charles, a year ago you were taken. I never really knew how to handle it. My life changed that day. All of our lives changed, but I'm forever grateful for you. I miss hanging out with you, grilling and ask, asking me about base, basketball. I miss being on the boat, all the trips we took. You provided a beautiful lifestyle for us while loving us. I miss meeting up with you and you counselling me on how to make the right decisions. I'm so sorry that this happened. It's hard to believe that I won't ever get to talk to you on earth, but I know one day I'll get the opportunity to show you my full love and gratitude for all of your love and being my dad. I love you, Dad. So that's sad. I feel like, you know, the victims in this often get a bit forgotten just because Laurie and Chad are such show ponies that it's yeah. always about them it's you know I feel like especially you know Charles is um I feel like There's he gets put to the background a bit yeah so that was a really nice post from Colby yeah um one other you know not it is crazy but nothing really surprises me in this case anymore but mm-hmm. we learned in July that the lead investigator who was Detective Hope in the case was actually married to Chad Daybell's niece which I can't believe that the case got to July this year with that being the case. He's now been taken off the case, which is good, I guess. So the world clearly didn't end on July 22, which is when Laurie and Chad predicted it was going to. I know we spoke about this. Might as well have. Why not just burn it to the ground? But (laughs) they they both apparently spent the day in their prison cells reading scripture, which I know I've spoken about before, but it's just uh, whatever. They're just not nice people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Chad's preliminary hearing started August 3 and it was announced then that his case would advance to the district court. Laurie's legal team waived um, her right for a preliminary trial. On August 8, 2020, which this is good news, the Arizona police said they were looking into new possible charges for Laurie in relation to Charles's death. Sergeant Jason McClymans with the Chandler Police Department said if and when they go over to Maricopa County Attorney's Office, one charge will be conspiracy to commit murder. So while this is all happening, Laurie's clearly still focusing on the important things. She filed a motion that would allow her to wear street clothes <laughs> during her next court hearing and all those that follow, and she got that approved. Like why? Like why bother? Who cares? I know. Like, why did her like attorney even like allow her to do this? What a waste of time. I know. I can't wait to see what she wears. And I can't wait to see her latest Jolly Rancher lip colour. And then the last update in this one is that there was court records filed on September 11 and they indicate now that Laurie's trial will take place between March 22 and April 2 next year. So we can hope that that goes ahead. Seems like within in that in this case, this is one case where it seems to still be progressing. They seem to be in court every day almost doing filing some new motion or there's just like so much going on. I would hate to be involved in this case. Oh, God, I would just yeah, I know, me too. There's so many people. Where would you even start? I don't even know where you'd start. but It's just like a big web. Yeah. Anyway, all the documents are on the blog if you want to check them out. And there will be, I know there'll be updates in this one, so we'll give you more updates as they come. We'll also cover Lori's um, street clothes fashion choices. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like they do for the Oscars and the, you know, Emmy Awards and all that. We'll do a Lori Lori fashion rundown. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so then next we did a two-part episode on Holly Bobo. 
Unincorporated Darden, Tennessee is little more than a pit stop along Highway 412 in Decatur County. With a tiny community center, park, and rundown gas station, the only signs are passing through. Winding roads cut through miles of quiet farm country. 911, what's your emergency? Yes, honey, Dakota County 911. This is them. What's, what's wrong, baby? Listen, 631 flying drone to Rose. The search for Holly would become the single most expensive missing persons investigation in the history of the state of Tennessee. Despite that massive effort, investigators and scores of volunteers would never find Holly. Two and a half years later, it was a ginseng hunter who stumbled on turned out to be her remains in july of this year so this is actually pretty new news that um jason autry as we know he made a deal with the prosecution to testify against zach and he entered a guilty plea to facilitation of especially aggravated kidnapping and (laughs) solicitation to commit first degree murder The sentence was eight years, but with time served, he is now a free man. So he'll still be monitored through supervised release as a result of the unrelated federal charges that he had. I think it had to do with guns. His defense attorney said he's walking out. He's extremely remorseful for everything that's happened and extremely sorry for what's taken place and wants to show everybody that he has reformed himself. Prosecutors gave Autry partial immunity in return for his testimony three years ago in the trial against Zach, who investigators say shot and killed Bobo. Adams was convicted of first-degree murder, aggravated rape, and aggravated kidnapping in the case, and he is also trying to get a new trial. In August, it was denied by that Judge McGinty, I think was the name, who I remember in the episode where like, it's kind of weird that they would try to appeal it to the same judge. But he denied it, so now I guess it's going to the Court of Appeals for Zach to get a new trial. That's crazy. It's wild. I feel for her family. It must be hard for them to have to keep going through all this. Um, These ones that like are going on like this are so long. Like It's kind of similar to Kara. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder how, like, and I know obviously everyone grieves differently, but it must be so hard for them to attempt to, you know, move on when this is just always still hanging over. Constantly, like yep. something. So the next few episodes we did, um, they were all pretty recent, so there's not really any updates with any of them. The Todd family, there's nothing else with that. Um, the Mostly Harmless, nothing else with that besides maybe more Facebook drama. <laughs> I, I do see, like, the Mostly Harmless case for me, I feel like it's just kind of bubbling along. Like, people still talk about it. People still throw out ideas for who he could be, but there isn't anything that's confirmed. Um I, I do think out of all the cases that we've covered, that's probably my most intriguing one, which, I, I, like, it's not even that intriguing, but just it just is. I just can't believe that no one knows. Like, at this point, I just want to know. Yeah, yeah. And, I like, I know in the case, like, for example, of last week, once we actually know, it's not, you know, you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. It's almost like the, 
the you know investigation is more interesting than what actually the outcome will be. And I have no doubt that's probably also the case with him. Do they even have to release his identity if they didn't want to? Like, no, well, they don't. Like, they often say that um, you know the family doesn't want us to, so they don't release it. But then it always. Oh my god, that'll be so disappointing. I know. I know. Um, and then, yeah, nothing really new on the bodies in suitcases either. Most of those were done. One. The other one yeah. going to trial, I'm assuming. But Yeah. And the other one that we did recently was Evelyn, which was our most recent, but obviously nothing new really since last week. We'll keep you updated on the happenings with that, which and that is another one which seems to be also progressing fairly quickly. So we'll keep you updated on that when things happen. But we've saved our biggest update for last, and it was, you know, of course, as we said, happened right after our podcast episode where we spoke about Michael Shaver. Michael Shaver was a man from Claremont in Florida who went missing. Um, No one really realised that he was missing for a few years because someone was still using his social media and texting and different things like that. Um, But we all knew really that his wife, Laurie, was kind of responsible for his disappearance and his body was found under a fire pit in their house, or, you know, in, in the house, in the backyard of their home. So this most recent update is actually massive. So Michael Shaver's wife, Laurie, was arrested and charged with his murder. We've got the affidavit, which we'll go through, but um, we know now that he was shot in the head and they buried him in a fire, you know, under the fire pit. She's currently been held in Lake County Jail on charges of second-degree homicide, domestic violence, and accessory after the fact in second-degree homicide. It's obviously a big relief. More than five years after Michael Shaver was last seen alive, friends and family may finally have an answer as to who deputies say killed this Lake County man. Hopefully we're going to have closure. It's going to be a long, drawn-out thing, I'm sure. I mean, Michael was a great guy. I mean, uh, you know, he was just a, he was just a real great guy. Deputies arrested Shaver's wife, Lori, and charged her with second-degree murder and accessory after the fact. We may contact him for any statement. We spoke to Lori Shaver back in early 2018 when deputies first searched the Shaver property near Claremont and eventually found Michael Shaver's remains under a cement slab in the backyard. Court paperwork says Lori etched her name in the cement above Shaver's body, along with her boyfriend at the time. This investigation all began after a close friend of Michael Shaver's called deputies. So what we'll do now, there's a, um, I think it's a 10 or 12 page affidavit that we'll quickly run through. We won't read through every single bit. I'll put it up on the blog if you want to read it the whole lot yourself, but we'll just pick out the most important and most interesting things to go through. So it starts off, you know, just confirming where they lived. And then it says, deputies responded to the Shaver home for a wellbeing check on Michael Shaver on February 16, 2018, at the request of a friend, Scott Amatuccio. So I know we spoke about him in our episode as well. Um, it says that Mr. Amatuccio felt the circumstances surrounding Michael's disappearance were suspicious and that his wife, Laurie, wasn't being truthful. Uh, Scott had text messages or found the text messages that apparently Michael sent to his boss about quitting his job and giving away his tools to be unlike him. He also found the concrete fire pit suspicious. And then he, when he spoke to Michael's family, they all agreed that he would never leave his kids to start a new family, which was what Laurie was telling them that he had done. So that kind of goes on as an introduction to why they started to look into the case again. You know, they go through the investigation. So they said he had no other driver's license in any other state. His vehicle had been repossessed and that court documents for a credit card non-payment weren't able to be served to him because he wasn't able to be located. 
that it goes into the missing person investigation. It speaks about Travis, who was Laurie's boyfriend and or I guess husband, but I don't know if they could ever really be legally married. Anyway, that's another story <laughs> for another time. But so Laurie and Travis, it says in here, started dating in January 2016. And in April 2016, Laurie apparently made a statement to Travis that said, it's not that he's missing. He's no longer walking this earth. And he said that Laurie said that something bad had happened and there was a body on the property. We'll go into it a little bit more, but I'm not convinced that he didn't know that already. Like yeah. he wasn't across what was happening. So when they um, unearthed Michael from the fire pit, they said he was found beneath three feet of concrete. He was clothed in socks, shorts and underwears. His body was wrapped in a tarp with a set of ratchet straps and the remains of a fitted sheet. The tags indicate that the sheet was queen size and was purchased at Coles, which was a store that Laurie shopped at all the time, and that was also on her bank records. So she's not the sharpest tool in the shed. No. Anyway, it says, um, so in this, in that paragraph two, it confirms his cause of death. It says it was homicide by gunshot wound to the back of the head. A single 38 caliber class projectile was recovered from his skull and they said he determined to died several months to several years before his body was discovered. Big gap there. Yeah. And I'm not, I always thought that he was probably shot. I, you know, and it sounds like she... It seems like it, they liked guns and had quite a few guns. So, And also the gunshot to the back of the head. So that makes it seem to me like she caught him by surprise. It wasn't like she shot him in self-defense from the front. And he wasn't wearing clothes, so it seems like maybe he was sleeping Going or to bed it was nighttime. Or, yep. Or... Yep. Um, so then it talks a bit more about, you know, the blood and the evidence that they found. It says that they believe he was killed between November 7, 2015, which was the last day he was seen, and November 10, so a five-day gap, which was the first day he didn't show up to work. Um, his, last, his phone was last used November 7 at 5.48, and he was also seen on November 7 by, by his co-workers goes through the text that we spoke about in the episode where it said Mike left yesterday, packed his stuff and went to the airport. So these things are kind of happening um, around the time that he disappeared. On Monday, November 16, Laurie sent a private message to a friend saying that she did tons of yard work and cleaned up (laughs) outside. (laughs) So that would have been, you know, maybe a week after he was murdered. That's what everyone calls it, yard work. Yeah, I'm not surprised she had a lot to clean up. So this I also found interesting and it did remind me a lot of the Laurie Vallow case um, where Laurie Vallow purchased wedding dress and all that on Amazon and so this kind of has shades of that. So November 9, Michael Shaver's debit card was never used again but for in-store purchases but on November 19 and again on November 23, two separate purchases were made at (laughs) wish.com. They... Whoever used them ordered female lingerie and clothing items, and these were both shipped to Lori Shaver. If you don't know Wish.com, it's like you should because it's always advertised on everything on Facebook. There's always ads for it, and it's always for some ridiculous item, like a hammock for your turtle, like (laughs) the most random things that you couldn't even think of existing. So it's just knives and forks for your dog, yeah, like just things that you never ever need. So then it goes over all his purchases again. It says that on December 15, an online purchase was made at walmart.com. 
and the receipt was sent to Laurie Shaver. So she's still using his, you know, cards and bank accounts during this time. Laurie's story, yeah, Laurie's story was also that Michael had moved to Georgia, but all the purchases were made in Claremont and were shipped to the Shaver residence there. Nothing was ever shipped to Georgia. So by the beginning of December then, so we're probably at about a month after he went missing or was killed, Laurie was selling and attempting to sell Michael's guns. The Joseph Bray was the owner of JB Guns, overheard her attempting to sell multiple guns at that time. He offered to purchase the remaining ones and he went to her house on December 6th or 7th to complete the purchase. He purchased nine guns from her, including 38 caliber revolvers, which was the weapon used to kill Michael or the same type of gun. I don't know if it was the exact weapon, but it may have been. Um, she told Mr. Bray that the firearms belonged to her husband, but that he'd left or she, and she hadn't seen him or heard from him. She didn't know where he was. He told, she also told him at the time that the house was for sale for $150,000. So she's kind of, I guess, setting it up to get out of there at that time, which was quite soon after he died. It gets this. It gets messy here. Well, not messy, but more people start getting introduced into this case. So, at November seven, until Michael's body was discovered, Laurie kept telling people that she had seen him and spoken to Michael, and that he was stalking her. On December three, <laughs> two thousand and fifteen, she sent a private message to her supervisor, saying that she'd been getting child support, but now he was in jail for non-payment, which was clearly a lie. She's told people that he was in Georgia, New York, and California. She told her boyfriend, Travis, that she was divorced and that then she married him, even though her marriage to Michael was still valid. When a friend, when her sister-in-law asked her about the divorce, she stated it was final and that Michael was at the courthouse for her for the divorce hearing, but in a separate room. She <laughs> told Travis Filmer's mother, Kendall, which I know we spoke about her in the episode as well, that Michael was a pilot, which was why he was never around. So she's basically telling everyone all these different stories about where he is. Everyone gets a different version depending on what she feels like telling them on the day, it seems. Yeah, she doesn't even like try to keep track of it, it seems. Yeah. She also I looks like she did attempt to maybe get a divorce. There's a $208 charge for mydivorcepapers.com. I meant to look up the website. Is it like fake divorce papers? <laughs> Remember someone, it was Gannon's stepmom. What did she do that was like similar? It was like fake polygraph results, yeah. right? That's what it made me think of. <laughs> I've just brought up my divorce papers. So it seems like it is a website where you can actually get divorced. It says how the divorce process works. Create an account, answer the questions, file the documents. So... It seems like she was maybe trying to get a divorce online, but there is no evidence that either Michael or Laurie ever filed for a divorce. Don't let your husband see your search history. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we now know that Michael died in basically November 2015, but that the fire pit wasn't constructed until March 2016 and that the concrete slab was poured in September 2016. So I'm assuming that she just buried him in that location um, and decided that maybe she needed to put something over it to make it a bit more permanent. A little more effort. Yeah. It says two photos and a post on Laurie's Facebook page, which were dated the 24th of March, 2016, show the fire pit being built along with the statement, newest project, built this fire pit today and now just need to pour in concrete. I love how she's just like posting about it too. Like, I know. 
she knows she's burying or covering up a murder and she's just like new project (laughs) (laughs) um so she also posted photos of on facebook of the concrete mix there was at least 14 bags visible in the in her pickup truck she wrote cement it's going in the area around the fire pit i built (laughs) like no one cares they laurie and travis had a joint bank account and there was a 290 dollar purchase at lowe's which confirmed through receipts that 42 bags of concrete mix were purchased. The same bank account shows a charge of $75 at Home Depot, which was for a large electric cement mixer rental. The cement mixer was rented by Travis Filmer. I feel like also most normal people like wouldn't just do this themselves. No. Unless you're hiding a body. Yeah. And I know I, I, I should have probably said this at the start, but I think it sounds like Travis maybe turned on Laurie at the end. Yeah. I don't know why or what happened, but um, in this it says that Travis told detectives that the hole was only th- three to four inches deep when they filled it with concrete. He thought it was odd that the dirt pile on the edge of the property that Laurie said came from the hole was much too large to have come from a hole only that deep. So I'm assuming that he's insinuating that she dug it a lot deeper and then kind of lied about it because obviously you can't bury your body three to four inches. So if there was a photo on that Laurie posted on the 22nd, sorry, 27th of February, 2017, which showed the concrete slab in place and that Google Earth confirmed that in March, 2017, although Laurie confirmed to report seeing and speaking with Michael after this date. So we know that for months after, Michael's family and friends were getting text messages from someone, you know, who said they were Michael. The postcard part that's coming up, I think yeah. that just shows is how fucking insane and smug she is. Yeah. So this was three days after his body was discovered in the fire pit, but it was before he was positively identified. A postcard with his photograph was mailed from Orlando to Laurie with a handwritten message. Tell the kids I love them. See you soon, Mike. <laughs> so, you know, but she's Also, still... why would it be like, see you soon, if they I were know. divorced anyways and he uh, like was living another life and now he's suddenly coming home? Like, her own story doesn't even make sense. And why is she sending a photo? Like, who would send a photo of themselves? I don't know. It's the whole thing. Show the kids. <laughs> So I think it's Jeremy Townsend was interviewed in this case and said that he began dating Laurie in September 2015 and she told him that she'd left her husband. The first time, this is really strange to me, the first time he went to her house in December, he noticed what he thought was blood stains on the thigh of her jeans. He asked her if it was blood and she changed the jeans and never wore them again. He remarked prior to that, Laurie wore those jeans three times a week. But like why, if, if it was blood, why is she wearing bloody jeans? Like, what is going on with that? I must, maybe it wasn't a lot, but. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was just a few droplets. I think it's funny that he pointed out that she wore them three times a week. (laughs) Um, Oh, gosh, this is messy. This is, I think it's important to go into, but. And we mentioned this in the first episode we did because we heard it was a rumor. Yeah, that she was sleeping They were having an affair and that we suspected that his wife was the one that had the restraining order against her. So this confirms that the the local gossip was true. So it says, beginning in February 2016 and for several months, Jeremy Townsend's wife, Vanessa, received Facebook messages from Michael Shaver's account and also text messages. 
They went unread until April when she received a flower delivery at work with the message. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue. My wife is a whore. Your husband is too. Sorry about this. Check your Facebook message. We need to talk. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So uh, Michael, you know, obviously someone pretending to be Michael, told Vanessa he'd installed a spy up on Laurie's cell phone and captured text messages and explicit photographs between their spouses. He shared them with Vanessa. The messages and photographs were intended to notify her of the affair and that, you know, I, I think that the plot was that Vanessa would get these messages and then she'd leave Jeremy. And then be with Laurie and they could live yeah. happily ever after. He would be the new Travis <laughs> or he would be the, the first Travis. Yeah, the first Travis. So Vanessa confronted Jeremy and in April 2016, he admitted to the affair, but in April 2016, he broke off the affair with Laurie and started to repair the you know the relationship with his wife. <laughs> this is funny. Jeremy also described a tattoo Laurie got of his nickname, which was Jay. So she got that name in a heart on her vagina. She's so desperate. <laughs> God. Um, it says that he then thought that Laurie was more serious about their relationship than he was, and he always only considered it purely sexual. Major red flag. <laughs> yeah. So that it says that Jeremy and Vanessa are totally cooperative with the investigation. They've given the um, police the card and envelope from the flower delivery as well as 600 pages of text messages, Facebook messages and photos. Oh, my God. So I know. So I would it sounds love to like, see those text messages. <laughs> so there's a whole, you know, big section about Jeremy and Vanessa, which we won't read the whole lot, but things like there was a flower arrangement, which we spoke about, from Vanessa to, Mark, to Vanessa from Mike. It was purchased on Laurie Shaver's BB&T checking account from You Flowers for $42. <laughs> so things like that. So it goes into, you know, everything that basically all Laurie's lies and what she's been telling people. I wonder what the email was that's redacted. Yeah, yeah I'd like to I see it. I hope it's like Laurie Shaver123 <laughs> <laughs> at AOL.com. Um, they looked at the IP addresses listed for Michael's account and it shows that the IPs used for both Michael and Laurie, with, there was 13 addresses and they're identical for both. So that makes it pretty clear that someone was, you know, the you same person. The yeah. So then a friend of the Shavers, Mary Lunenberg, I think it is, showed detectives a text message um, that Michael sent her and it said, she wants my life insurance, obviously referring to Laurie. Mary said, she's got to kill you first. And Michael said, she tried to yesterday, I'm sure. So she tried to remember the exact date, but it was an old phone, but she thinks it was 2014 or 2015. I wonder what followed in that conversation because, like, if you, someone's like, oh, she tried to kill me yesterday, wouldn't you be like, what happened? I don't know. You'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't just be like, LOL. <laughs> um, Corey, who we spoke about in the episode as well, who was Michael's co-worker, said that three to four months before his disappearance, he came to work with bruises on his face, chest, and arms. Michael said Laurie had gotten angry and blew up with him about something. And when um, Corey asked Michael why he didn't fight back, Michael said it wasn't worth it. You know, that's just, I guess, supporting their kind of volatile relationship. And that he wasn't, like, beating her up. Yeah. Like, because remember, they don't really get into it, but with the last fight, he, she tried to make it seem like he was, like, beating her up. Yeah. Yeah, that she was kind of, and I know, I know she's probably setting it up now for self defense. This is yeah. where this is probably going to go. It seems like she's just the aggressor. Yeah. 
So we also learned in the affidavit about a woman that Michael Shaver dated called Kendall. There's lots of Kendalls everywhere. <laughs> Kendall was Travis's, and different Kendall was Travis's mother. This is Kendall Davidowski. Uh, she dated Michael for around six months in November 2014 to May 2015. They both met at Disney where they both worked. He told um, Kendall that he was separated from Laurie and she, Laurie was also dating someone. Um, she said that she witnessed Laurie telling Michael he would never see her, the kids again and that she used the children as a pawn to get what she wanted. During their dating period, Laurie constantly sent messages to Kendall, harassing her, threatening to expose her as a homewrecker. So Laurie, I don't know, it's crazy. Laurie needs a job. Yeah, she needs a life. <laughs> um, Laurie called Disney HR, which was Kendall's workplace, in April 2015 and filed a complaint using photographs from Kendall's Facebook pages. <laughs> what a bitch. I know, what a bitch. Another time, February and March 2015, Michael called and told Kendall to park in a different spot than she usually did because Laurie was on her way to Disney with a gun. Oh, my God. So not surprisingly, Kendall broke off her relationship with Michael in May 2015 because of the harassment from Laurie. Not surprising. Yeah. In November 2015, um, Kendall found out that no one could find Michael. She sent him a Facebook message and noticed his Facebook said he was living in Afghanistan. She asked him what, you know, what was up and he wrote back and wrote, I left. Kendall asked about his kids and Michael, or whoever was that, never responded to him again. So we're nearly at the end, but we learned that Laurie was known to keep a pink 38 caliber handgun on her nightstand. Um, Cute. Yeah. So the, the police took the gun from her during the domestic violent incident in uh, September 2014, but they gave it back to her in June 2015. So it seems like it is that gun? Was that? Well, I think she, she, I thought she might have sold it to that other guy who bought the nine guns, but it goes on to say she sold it to someone else. Mm. So I'll go. I'll get into that. On New Year's Eve, 2016 or 17, you know, whatever, that was Laurie's wedding night with Travis. It says that Laurie locked herself in her bedroom and pulled a gun and had to be talked down by a family member. <laughs> so it sounds like a successful On wedding. her wedding night? <laughs> um, in October 2017, Laurie sold a pink 38 caliber handgun to a neighbor, Robert Seager. Say, I don't know if that's how you say it. Anyway, Robert, a neighbor. And he turned it over to the police later. It, it, they forensically examined the gun to see if it could be the murder weapon and it says that they weren't able to include or exclude it. So I don't, yeah, sounds like but it. But when she had sold it, wait, when did he die? Um, to that, so she, she sold it in 2017. He died in, he died in 2015, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Seems like a random time to decide to sell or maybe because they were getting suspicious of her. So she was trying to get rid of it. Yeah. Would have been like one of the first things you should do, you would think. Yeah, you'd think so. Anyway, it says basically she had access to a lot of guns. It says that she had access to the two thirty-eight caliber handguns that she sold in December, which I think that probably seems more likely to have been maybe one of the murder weapons because she sold that in December mm-hmm. 2015. But then it says she also had access to four thirty-eight caliber handguns during the time frame of Michael's homicide. Yeah, he had a lot of guns yeah. too. So... This paragraph, this is the final paragraph in it, um, and I think this is a good um, summary of the case. So I'll read the entire thing. It says, Laurie Shaver was the last person to be seen with Michael Shaver and the only other adult occupant of the property where his body was buried. Days after he was last seen, Laurie lied about Michael going to Georgia with a friend. Laurie Shaver constructed the fire pit and poured the concrete on her five-acre property exactly over Michael's grave. 
Laurie lied to family and law enforcement about Michael's whereabouts and claimed to have seen and communicated with him well after his disappearance and after the concrete slab was poured over his body. Laurie gave away, sold, or attempted to sell many of Michael's belongings within a month of his disappearance. Laurie drained Michael's bank account within the month after his disappearance after making a fraudulent loan deposit in his name. Laurie had access to four 38 caliber handguns at the time of Michael's homicide. Laurie told her boyfriend that Michael wasn't missing, he was no longer walk- walking this earth, and that there was a body on the property. Laurie claimed to have seen and talked to Michael and assumed his identity on Facebook, Facebook Messenger, and text in order to convince family and friends he was still alive, a ruse which did not benefit her in any other way than prolonging the discovery of, this, of his homicide. So that's the extent of the affidavit. Um, are Lo- I'm guessing that Laurie and Travis aren't together anymore. It doesn't anymore. sound like it. I, w- I wonder. It seems like he definitely ratted her out. But I still think he knew about it the whole time and then just didn't want to also get in trouble or yeah, something. Yeah, I wonder if we'll, you know, maybe he took a deal to, you know, that hasn't come out yet, but maybe he took a deal to kind of lessen his yeah. call it liability. I still think it's crazy that this took so long because a lot of this seems to have been discovered in like 2018. Yeah. I guess they were just getting their ducks in a row and waiting till they had everything. And um, the other thing, which isn't in the affidavit, but Laurie's mugshot has been released and she... <laughs> Worst eyebrows oh. ever. <laughs> she looks... I'm glad she looks this terrible because she's a terrible person, but she looks, I don't know, haggard. Oily. Yeah, she's had a hard time. <laughs> like she looks greasy. <laughs> and she has like those comma eyebrows. Yeah, way. That were cool in the 90s, I Maybe she overplucked her eyebrows so badly that she. (laughs) this is all she's got now. Definitely. So that's it. Um, There's nothing else since the affidavit. Yes, this all came out about a week ago. I don't know what the process will be now for Laurie. They'll go back and forth for a while, I'm guessing, and then eventually it'll go to trial. Unless she pleads guilty, which I doubt. I think she would die before she pleads guilty. Just says, like, I've just tried to see if I could see anything, you know, about dates or anything. It just says she's been held in a Lake County jail without bail. And Lieutenant John Harrell, who's the Lake County Sheriff, said, this has been a long time coming. For some time we have felt we've had a strong case against Laurie Shaver. This case, to say it was bizarre from the get-go, is an understatement. It's funny that her and Laurie Vallow share the same first name because they're very similar. Yeah, they are very narcissistic and... I won't be surprised if Lori Shaver tries to like do her makeup and wear street clothes and stuff like that. She also seems to care a lot about appearances, I yeah. guess. I do wonder what happened or what has happened to the kids now and that Michael's dead and Lori's in jail. I hope. Those poor I kids. How old are they? They're- I think they may be now like 12 and 8 or something. They're probably older than 8, but, you know, they're not old. They're not, you know, if anything, they're early teens. So it must be hard. It's sad because they're, like, old enough to kind of understand what's going yeah, on. And it must be hard for them now, essentially, that they've lost both parents. Both so parents. I hope they've got a good support network. I'm sure they do. Like, I know, well, I know especially Michael's family seem very caring, but who knows what's happened. Yeah. Hopefully they're somewhere that stable. So I think that's it. We'll put the affidavit up on the blog so you can read the entire thing. Um, I'm glad that we finally got some answers, and I'm glad for Michael's family. Yeah, it was so random because I feel like we've been waiting for this for so long and then I was just busy at work and I wasn't paying attention to my phone or anything. And usually we all talk on a Facebook messenger and Danielle texted me and was like, they arrested Lori. And I was like, oh my God, 
we always know like when we get a text from each other it's yeah, important then, you know otherwise you just catch up when you can but when you get a text you're like oh my gosh gotta get on now <laughs> so all the updates for all the episodes you've done so far some bigger than others but it is great that Lori shaver has finally been arrested hopefully there will be some exciting updates with the Valo case and Lori's fashion soon. I've been working on some research for doing an episode on Broken Arrow and the Bever family. I always say, the I always say family, Bever I as well. Bever. I don't know how, yeah. I always just call them the Bevers. <laughs> I think it's Bever. <laughs> but if you guys want to do a little research on that one before you listen to the episode, that's where the two teen brothers, brothers murdered their whole family with an axe. Yeah, it's a wild one. Yeah, it's a very interesting one. So I've been doing research on that. Hopefully, I'll have it ready for the next episode. Um, we'll see, though. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise, we also have the CCTV one Yeah, that we're working yeah, on. Lots of cool stuff coming up anyway. We've got a lot of ideas, just, you know, living busy lives. Yeah. <laughs> doing our best, being naturally mean. <laughs> <laughs> naturally mean and smug. <laughs> um, make sure you're in our Facebook group if you're not we have been having more people join our Facebook group from here in the podcast which is pretty cool follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all that as usual and like we said earlier make sure you check out our new merchandise um, it should be up by the time this is out so I'll we'll link it on the um, blog yeah show notes and yeah, yeah we'll pop it up everywhere you won't miss it but otherwise that's it and I hope you guys have a good week Thanks for the memes. <laughs> and one thing I wanted to add quickly, if you do have any other like local knowledge insider updates on any of our cases, send us a message because we like to hear the, the juicy stuff, the juicy the stuff. Local, yeah. The local too. <laughs> but we'll see you guys next time. See you soon. Yeah.